Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. have been uh, my parents' 60th wedding anniversary. <clears throat> and I say uh, would have been um, because my my dad uh, died in 1984. <clears throat> so this would have been their 60th wedding anniversary. He would have been 80 this year, um, but my dad didn't, didn't live this long. Uh, and um, so, you know, let me just confess, I don't actually remember uh, much of anything in the aftermath of my dad's death. I, I distinctly remember, you know, being 15 years old and being the person at home on that Saturday morning who took the phone call from an overseas operator um, in, the, in the country where my dad was uh, on a business trip at the time, telling me he'd been found dead in his hotel room. And, and so I remember that moment, like, vividly. I can describe to you, you know, the, the floor under my feet. I can describe, I can describe, I describe, Absolutely. That is a vivid memory for me. I I remember the people and a few selective moments in the several weeks that follow that. Um, I have no idea uh, how the end of my, how, you know, like the last month and a half of my sophomore year of high school. I don't know. Maybe they just, I have no idea how that transpired. I don't remember any of that. I remember a few people um, who were significant. Um to be there. Thousands of people were there for us as a family. Please don't get me, uh, please don't misunderstand me. Um, But a few people stand out in my mind because they were there when, um, you know, at a particular moment when I ask a question or they offered a, um, a silent witness or uh, you know, you're, you're dealing with questions and, and disbelief that you are unprepared for. So, let me just say that my experiences of death as a young person, and not only my dad's death uh, when I was 15, but the death of a cousin who died when we were both 13, uh, a high school teammate who died in a car accident her senior year, my sophomore year, my experiences of death when I was a freshman and sophomore in high school had uh, a significant formative influence on me. I asked questions that my peers were not asking because they didn't have to. I needed God in ways that they did not yet perceive themselves to need God. Uh, Those same people are now, you know, in their early 50s, and their parents are now dying. And some of them, for the very first time, are asking the questions that I asked and have had answered uh, now for 35 years. Don't wait 35 years or don't wait until death comes knocking on the particular door of your house to uh, to discover who Jesus is, to discover the peace that passes all understanding, to discuss the uh, answer to the questions you hoped you'd never have to ask. Um, so many people, uh, you know, wait, frankly, too long to allow God into their life. And so let me just uh, say 
that I have some urgency every single day about the conversation related to Jesus and getting right with God through Jesus Christ. It is for me not primarily a theological conversation or an apologetic debate. It's not. Uh, It is about where you're going to spend the greater part of your life, which is not the part you're living right now. It's the part you're going to live forever and ever, either in the fullness of the presence of the living God or apart from his presence. That's it. Those are the two alternatives for where you're going to spend your eternal life. And and a relationship with God uh, restored through Jesus Christ right now changes everything. It changes everything about this life. It changes everything about uh, how you understand, see yourself, present yourself in the world, every relationship you have, your marriage, your relationship with your children, um, your understanding of justice, on and on and on and on and on. And yes, it changes your perspective on death. I don't fear death for myself, but I do fear death for everyone who I know that right now is living apart from God. And so let me just encourage you to get that business done today. I know that my Redeemer lives. I know that my Redeemer lives. He can be your Redeemer too. Consider Christ today. Next up, Erin Paskey. She and I are going to talk about the reality that lots of families are facing, which is that even as we go back to school, lots of kids are not actually going back to school. If you are schooling your kids at home, we've got some help for you. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. is returning uh, to talk with us about uh, a subject matter that when we talked the first time, I thought maybe we'd be done with by now, but we are not. And so Aaron Paskey is back as we enter into a new school year. Many people uh, doing school at home who hadn't planned to um, and who really maybe aren't prepared to. So Aaron Paskey from the Nashville Dyslexia Center, welcome back to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you, Carmen. I am so glad to join you again. Well, I really appreciate it. Um, let's just let's just start off with, you know, we've got families that are going to be, you know, supervising and engaged in remote learning, hybrid models that their schools are doing, you know, schools that are on an A-B schedule. So this week your kid goes, actually physically goes to school Monday and Monday and Thursday. Next week they go Tuesday and Friday. Nobody ever goes on Wednesday. Or, you know, some people are only doing it via the Internet, so they're staying home the whole time. Parents still have to go to work. Uh, you know, talk with us about coping, coping with an ever-changing reality of educational offerings. It's a hard time, Carmen. Um, I think a lot of families are are struggling right now to make these changes. A lot of these changes to schooling are changes we didn't intend to make. Um, these changes came upon us quickly and suddenly. And we haven't gotten it all smoothed out just yet. But I was listening to your last segment, Carmen, and something you said is applicable to this situation as well. You said in your last segment that the Lord is the answer to the questions that you have. And that's something that I wanted to share with parents today. The Lord is the source of wisdom, and he gives it freely when we ask him for it. And so the very best way, the first place to start is with the Lord. And so 
no matter what kind of schooling your child is doing right now, whether you're teaching everything at home or the hybrid model that Carmen mentioned, you have to start there. Um, you need a quiet time every morning to bring your concerns and your fears and the challenges that you're going through to the Lord, and He will lead you through whatever kind of educational situation that you have. And I think too, Carmen, that as parents seek the Lord in education, their children are going to see that. They're going to see that education is not separate from the Lord, um, from their faith. They're going to see that it's it's intricately intertwined. And so the Lord is going to be brought into the details of that education, whether it's help with a certain lesson or concept or just adjusting to being at home. He wants to be involved in all of those details. And so I think it's going to be a real testimony to children and families that the Lord is part of all of this. So I, I, I love that you start there. I, um, I, have, a, I have a friend who, uh, I mean, she talked about this now several months ago, that no matter what the uh the answer was going to be at their school because they were that she happened to be in a school that was like vacillating back and forth a lot about whether or not they were going to go back to campus if back to campus how how often in what format it was just creating a, a lot of stress um in their family and she sat her kids down and she said look here's what we're going to do we are going to consistently um have our quiet time with the lord you know at, at our dining room table every single morning at this time then we will all move forward into our day. And some days you will move forward into that day by going to your study space, you know, that we've already set up here in the house. Some days you will, you know, pick up your backpack and actually physically go to school. But every day the rhythm is going to be we start right here at the dining room table with our quiet time, you know, with the Lord. And so I do think that um, parents have more control than sometimes we imagine in terms of creating healthy rhythms where kids know there is something is going to happen consistently, consistently, it is going to be a place of peace. Um, I'm not going to be uh, feeling like a ping pong ball, which is frankly what a lot of us feel like right now in terms of like the decision making cycles of local school districts. I love that. You know, the Bible tells us that it's actually the parent's responsibility to educate their child. They're supposed to train them up, talk about the Lord as they go throughout their day. We read about that in Deuteronomy. And in modern times, we we use schools to that end of educating our children, but really it is the parent's responsibility. So while these times might be a hard change for families, I'm actually really excited about the increased time that families are going to be spending together. I think it's a really great opportunity for parents to really invest in their children and to get a closer look at what are their academic skills. Uh, When you're homeschooling in whatever manner that is, you have an intimate knowledge of what your child knows and what your child needs help with. And you have a greater connection with those academic skills than you would if you send your child to school for eight hours a day. So I think even though that there are bumps along this road that we're going, there's going to be a greater benefit. And I've even seen that in my practice. I have parents calling me here in Tennessee and school has already started here. And for some of our local public school students, they're doing an online public school for I think it's six or seven hours a day in front of the computer. And for a few of the families that have called me, they've said, you know what, this just isn't working for us. 
I'm looking at my son and he's just not picking up on this kind of instruction. And what's great about this time is so many families are making changes. Excuse me. And so those families can go, you know what? This isn't working for us. We're going to try something different. And there's so many options out there right now. So I think in a way, as we go through all of these changes, I do think education can improve and get better. Those who are doing online schooling, that service is going to improve as teachers become more comfortable with it. And as more families decide that they're going to school solely at home, more parents are going to become better at educating. So I think we're going to see a lot of specialization and a lot of options come from this after we get through these first few months of the new adjustments. All right, I'm going to continue my conversation with Erin Paskey in just a moment. If you want to find her, check out NashvilleDyslexiaCenter.com. We'll be right back. Continue my conversation with educator and, well, I would say um, child advocate extraordinaire, Erin Paskey. You can find her at Nashville Dyslexia Center. Um, Erin, you have a lot of experience with a lot of families um, in a lot of different learning environments. I'm wondering if um, there, you know, you could just help us. For those of us who might want a tutor or a mentor, a coach, counselor, a, 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 a consoler for our kid, like how do we go about finding a person, you know, that frankly we could hire in addition to what's being offered um, either by our school or that we feel the capacity to offer our own child? Like how do you go about doing that? That's a great question, Carmen. And I've probably been asked that same question about four times in the last couple of weeks. Um, For your viewing audience, I was a school teacher. And for six years after that, I worked for private families to educate their children at home. And that was where my journey with dyslexia started as one of the students I worked with had dyslexia. Now, I can tell you, I found my jobs mostly through word of mouth through relationships. And so parents, if you're looking for a tutor, your child's school actually might be a good place to start. If you call the front office, you could possibly ask for uh, any retired teachers who might be interested in helping educate your child. You could also seek out universities and colleges in your area. There may be recent education graduates who haven't found their dream job yet and who would be absolutely delighted to teach one-on-one for a time. Reach out to your church family also, the Sunday school department, in your mom's groups. Social media is a wonderful way to find this kind of work, and that didn't even exist back when I was looking for homeschool positions. And crazily enough, I found one of my favorite positions on Craigslist, Um, A family posted there that they were looking for a private educator. And so I think if you're going to look for a private educator of some sort, you need to cast a wide net. And even if you don't think you need one right now, it's a really good idea to see what kind of services are out there. And there are local tutoring centers in your neighborhood, most likely, of well-qualified people who can help you with a subject that maybe you don't have a lot of confidence in teaching. There are lots of people when you start looking. But I think that's the key, Carmen, is 
do what you can as a parent and then delegate. And that's what we're finding with a lot of families here in the Nashville area whose children are struggling with reading and with spelling. They're reaching out saying, our schools aren't able to meet the needs of our struggling learner. Can you help? And that's what we do at Nashville Dyslexia Centers. We step in and we teach that subject of reading when the parent isn't able to do it on their own. So the resources are out there. You just need to start putting out feelers and, and you'll find people that who can help you in your journey. All right. I love that. Um, retired teachers, recent college graduates, uh, education grads who haven't yet you know, found that position, uh, church members. I mean, the church is full of people who could do this. I mean, absolutely. No question about that. So um, I think that there are times, Aaron, that we just we feel more alone than we actually are. And sometimes it just helps, you know, sort of helps us see how much help is available if somebody just sort of gives us a clue where to look. Um, how about resources for families who who have a child with particularly special needs? I'm thinking here about, um, you know, special needs families whose child already lost an academic semester. And for them, that's a really, that's really debilitating in terms of their uh, educational pursuit. Talk with us about resources for families who have a special needs child. That can be really difficult. Um, parents often need the public school system or even their private school to provide those services to help their special needs child. And with having lost a semester, so to speak, back in, in the spring semester, and now perhaps with learning at home, those services might not look the same. They might not be adequate for what your child needs. And so I encourage families to reach out to local psychologists. Um, we have several in the Nashville area who are putting together almost like a consultation service where they're trying to network families with tutors, with therapists, um, with other professionals who can help support those unique learners. And so I think psychologists are actually a great untapped resource. They're often very well connected. And so I think families Try a local psychologist. And if your child has had any kind of psychoeducational evaluation, go back to that same person who did that testing and check with them about the resources that they have in their community. Always so helpful, Erin. Um, it's just an encouragement to talk with you. Uh, you remind us that education is our responsibility as parents. You remind us that we are more well-equipped to do it than we might imagine, that we know our child best, their, their needs and what they already know. And that we are with them in ways that we can be the curriculum. Um, I always think that that's helpful to remember as well. Um, our children are learning a pattern of life, not just uh, information. Aaron Paskey from the Nashville Dyslexia Center, thank you as always uh, for helping us cope with these very strange times. Thank you, Carmen. Really appreciate it. We'll be right back. All right, so uh, you you may remember back in 2012 when a Harvard professor announced at an academic conference that she had discovered a papyrus fragment upon which was written, Jesus said to them, my wife. It was the beginning of uh, a wide open conversation about uh, the claims of Orthodox Christianity it led to um, a journalist digging deep to see whether or not uh, the Harvard professor's 
let us say, postmodern ideology and interest in undermining uh, Christianity may have, may have primed her to cut some corners. And so he dug deep. He now tells that story in um, what I would love to describe as a novel, except that it's true. And so what I'm going to describe as a true crime novel. I don't even know if that's the right word. I don't have language for this. It's Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife, Ariel Sabar, the author, is up next. This is a don't miss. This is Max Licato. Jesus invites, come to me, all of you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Let me teach you because I am humble and gentle at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Do yourself a favor. Underscore, underline, and accept this invitation. Jesus says, let me teach you how to handle long Mondays and cranky in-laws. Let me teach you why people fight and death comes and forgiveness counts. We need answers. Jesus offers them. But can we trust him? Only one way to know. Seek him out. Lift up your eyes, set your sights on Jesus. No passing glances or occasional glimpses. Search the crowded streets and shadow-casting roofs until you spot his face. Then set your sights on him, and you'll find the only one and only. This is Max Locato. Joining me now, Ariel Sabar. He is, among other things, the author of Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. Um, Ariel, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you so much. Okay, so this is actually the best summer read out there. Like, there's not a better summer read out there. I realize we're getting toward the end of summer, but this is a great book. Um, I don't even really know quite how to categorize it. So how do you categorize uh, the book for people? It's 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 true crime. Yeah, it's true crime. Um, and, and it's a sort of biblical detective story at, at the same time. So, um, you know, it has a lot of the sort of themes um, and tropes of, of a true crime. But in this case, it's a work of investigative journalism um, that travels through kind of the highest levels of academia into Parts of the world of biblical scholarship, probably lots of folks have never um, seen or heard about, and then takes us into the life of this fascinating um, uh, con man living uh, in in rural Florida, uh, college dropout, um, who became part of this um, sensational uh, story um, that unfolded in Rome back in 2012. So let's go to Rome, 2012. You are uh, a journalist sitting in an academic, uh, or sitting at an academic event that you're covering for Smithsonian Magazine, and a Harvard professor gets up and announces that she has discovered a fragment, maybe the size of a business card, um, and it says, "Jesus said to them, my wife." What was the reaction in the room? And then what were the questions maybe that you immediately jotted down on your notepad? Well, you know, I was there as, a, as, an, as an observer, as a journalist, uh, trying to you know, cover it impartially, of course. Um, and, you know, it was really stunning. Um, I had, you know, been sent by Smithsonian Magazine, which had gotten advance word of this, this you know, earth shattering discovery. 
um, and um, was in the room. And, you know, it was interesting. These are the top scholars in the world of Coptic, uh, which is the language in which um, this uh, papyrus scrap is written. And for listeners who might not know, Coptic is um, the language of, early, of Jesus, uh, sorry, of, of, of Egypt's earliest Christians. And it's also the language in which um, some of the earliest surviving uh, copies of the Gospels are preserved, mostly because Egypt has a dry climate and, it, you know, manuscripts lasted a long time there. Um, and the scholars, you know, had a lot of questions right away. Um, you know, there are texts that describe uh, a close relationship uh, between uh, Jesus and Mary Magdalene. These are non-canonical texts, although the Gospel of John, of course, uh, has Jesus appearing to uh, Mary Magdalene first, and for that reason, she's sometimes known as the Apostle of the Apostles. But it's always it's always been sort of um, portrayed, whether in the canonical Gospels or the non-canonical Gospels, as a kind of a spiritual bond. And so what was so striking about this little fragment, which is partial, so we only have eight partial lines, is that this suggested um, something more. This suggested a, a human marriage. Um, in fact, an, another of the lines is uh, where Jesus is defend, appears to be defending Mary Magdalene is, she is able to be my disciple and uh, I dwell with her, I live with her. So it's very clear here that this is a Jesus who is living with Mary Magdalene is married to her and is defending her against some group of people who is challenging her authority as a disciple. Um, and so it wasn't so much the content um, that that alarmed, you know, these scholars. These are secular scholars, open-minded. This is not, you know, this is not like the church knocking this thing down. You have experts in Coptic who are looking at this thing and going, it looks a little funky. Um, the handwriting doesn't seem right. It seem, doesn't seem to be a handwriting that we've seen any of in, in antiquity. Uh, there are problems with the grammar. There's there are sort of spelling mistakes. Um, the way the ink is sitting on top of the papyrus looks a little bizarre. And so even within that room, within within a few minutes of the Q&A, there's some really sharp questions from the top scholars in the world. So there's a curiosity here about um, this fragment. And uh, you start digging. You start looking for the person who, I guess, owns is the right word here, owns the fragment, which is a uh, something that Dr. Karen King was not willing to disclose at the time. This is really, I think, the the intrigue of uh, uh, of how the story unfolds are these two what I'll describe as primary characters. There are other characters, but these two primary characters um, who we get to know uh, in in the course of the book. Um, so I don't know, tell us, you know, give us a little taste, give us a little character introduction to either one of them, um, you know, for folks to have a greater interest in picking up a copy of Veritas. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that, that's what make, makes the story so fascinating to me is that you have two these two like extremely different people. You have Dr. Karen King, who is one of the most prominent scholars of early Christianity in the world. She is the holder of the oldest endowed professorship in any subject uh, in America, um, very esteemed in her field. And then you have uh, the gentleman who whose identity did not become public until I started researching it, because, as you said, uh, Dr. King um, did not want to disclose it. He had asked for anonymity and she had protected it. Um, but after you know uh, several months of investigative reporting, I was able to find him and talk to him. And this is a guy who, um, you know, college dropout living in rural Florida had uh, washed out of a, a program in Egyptology in um, in Berlin, Germany. He's a German immigrant. 
He had a conflict with a professor. Um, he, he, had, he had aspirations for a future in Egyptology. It didn't, didn't really work out. Um, but he also has this very interesting um, private life. And I, you know, I have to be, uh, this is a family radio show, I, I presume. So I'll be no, careful, I mean, but... he's a, he's an internet pornographer. It's a, it's okay. a terrible thing. Yes, you can you say said it. it. I did. Um, yes. Yeah. So yes, he, he is, he is an internet pornographer and he featured uh, the, the star of his, uh, of his internet pornography for many years. And she was a star in this genre, um, was his own wife, um, a woman who not only, um, was, uh, sort of the center of these, these films, um, but also as sort of a sidelight, um, fashioned herself a medium who was able to, in her, in her mind or her belief system, uh, channel the voices of angels and of God. And, and so you have these really fascinating characters, this couple, you know, he actually, his birthday happens to be December 25th, which I always thought was interesting. Um, and his wife is a sort of spiritual medium. And so I just, there, there's this weird way in which the gospels, their own sort of private lives, these sort of adult videos they were making, all intersect in a weird way um, with the eight lines of Coptic on what is supposed to be this ancient papyrus. And they also belong to this sort of fetish genre known as hot wife, in which the women are sort of simultaneously sort of deified and, and, and desecrated in a way. And what one, one observer said, well, you know, you should have, it should have been called the gospel of Jesus's hot wife. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a really fascinating way in which a very private personal theology, I believe, this is my theory anyway, of this couple living in Florida winds up being associated with a papyrus that, that now scholars uh, universally regard as a forgery. All right. I'm telling you, you couldn't make this stuff up. And so uh, that makes the book particularly interesting. Um, it is a great read. We're going to continue this conversation in just a moment. The book is Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. We'll be right back. Talking with Ariel Sabar, you can find him online at arielsabar, S-A-B-A-R dot com. You're going to find lots of great reads there. One of the things you're going to find is a link to Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. Um, uh, Ariel, again, this is a story you couldn't make up and you didn't. Um, but tell us, there's a worldview conversation to have here, and it's about... Mm. Uh, faith and believability, our willingness to believe some things or the proof that we require to believe other things. How how does that how is that sort of a, a, a sub theme of this entire conversation? Well, that's a really great question, Carmen. I mean, the, the title of the book, Veritas, uh, Veritas means uh, it, it means truth in Latin. It, it also is famously um, the motto of Harvard University. Um, uh, but it, it, it speaks to more than that. And, and that is the question that sort of was always at the back of my mind as I was reaching the end of writing this book was, what is the kind of nature of truth in the context of religion? And how do different sort of groups of people or professionals or um, uh, uh, follow the path to truth? Now, as a journalist, I'm, I'm openly a, an empiricist. I believe that there are facts in the world. And I believe that if I pick up a phone and uh, go through, um, you know, documents, uh, court files, uh, in, you know, do interviews, I can sort of get closer to a kind of verifiable, discernible truth in the world. You know, we may, I may make mistakes on my, on my way there, you know, but we're ultimately uh, approaching something that is as, as reality. Um, and I think for a lot of believers um, in parts of their lives, they don't need 
science to tell them um, what is true, um, that there are some things that you just take on faith. I mean, that's what sort of faith is, right? And then uh, in the other camp, you have, um, I think, Karen King, who is a, I put her in, a, in the category of a po postmodern scholar, and there are, there are many postmodern scholars, um, for whom there, um, there, isn't, there isn't such a thing as objective truth, that essentially there's this idea that um, language creates the world. And that's a sort of fancy way of saying that whoever tells and sells the best story, whoever has the power and the biggest platform can sort of impose their version of reality on everybody else. And and I think that that's, you know, I, I, I'm not sort of a critic of postmodernism um, in every sense, because in some ways it's a great way to think about how text can be interpreted. Um, I mean, in my view, and I realize not everyone will agree with this, one can read a, a, a piece of scripture with whatever faith uh, you're in, and one person can take away one set of meanings from it. Um, and then, you know, a hundred years from now, someone in some other part of the world can take a very different, very personal spiritual meaning from it. And that's, that's okay. Um, but I think what may have happened in this particular case is that a postmodern way of reading text sort of crept over into historical investigation. And I think those are very different things. So like how you read a text, there can be very, very different ways you do that. But whether a small piece of papyrus is genuinely authentic or whether it's a modern forgery, there's only one answer. It either is or it isn't. And part of what comes at the end of the book when I wrestle with some of these bigger questions about the nature of truth or how people pursue truth is, um, you know, what happens when those different ways of understanding, those different ways of knowing, you know, faith, science, um, journalism, and sort of postmodernism sort of intersect in the same story? And, and how can that sometimes lead folks amiss? So we would um, imagine that a person who holds such an esteemed chair as Karen King holds would be an expert, and we would trust that person um, in ways that we might not just trust someone else to tell us the truth about something. And so I do think that part of this conversation is how how do I, as a person living, you know, in these days where some people are operating out of a, of a worldview um, that we might describe as historically modern— Versus those who are operating out of a postmodern worldview, and when the postmodernists are the are the recognized experts, and for them, truth is just kind of a fluid target. Um, I have to be much more vigilant in terms of who I regard as an expert on subject matter. Is that one of the fair takeaways from this experience? Well, I would say that you have to take. And I think that's. I think you have to do what you do when you evaluate any new piece of information, which is. Um, it's kind of to avoid the, the knee-jerk reaction that all of us have when we encounter um, evidence or, or, or a story that, that just, just sort of makes us, that repels us in some way, because the gut feeling is not enough to go on. And, and certainly there were, you know, Orthodox Christians, evangelicals, um, the devout Catholic who immediately upon hearing this said, oh, this can't be true. There's no way it can be true. And in some ways, I don't think that reaction is, is right either, because it's not evidence-based. And so what I would say people should do is, is consult a wide range of sources, consult other scholars. And I think in the end, good scholarship did win out here um, because you had, again, you know, the top scholars in um, the uh, non-canonical gospels, in, in early Christian manuscripts, in the, the, the language of, of Coptic, who very quickly, and we're in a very interlinked world now on the Internet where scholarship can happen online, on blogs, 
And very, very quickly, they identified problems with the grammar, with the handwriting that, that suggested that something wasn't quite right. So it's the same um, It's the same advice I would give to anyone evaluating any, any piece of information that makes you go, huh? You know, it's like, um, don't go with a gut reaction. The gut reaction is an easy one to go with. Um, go out, look at other, look at what other scholars are saying, look at what other news sources are saying, and then vet the information. And I think that's incumbent upon all of us at a moment, I think, in history, where the very idea of, of facts is under attack. This idea that we all have our own truths and we can sort of make it up as we go along and whoever's shouting loud enough wins the argument. So I think this speaks to something much, much broader than, than what's, what's addressed in the book. Is this a um, is there another story you're pursuing now without obviously giving away, you know, some secret project you're working on? <laughs> but like, right, is that because you seem to be interested in pursuing these kinds of stories at this intersection of of faith and history and untold stories? Sure. I mean, uh, the, the one that I've just finished, that um, another story that originated in the Atlantic magazine uh, came out uh, about a month, month and a half ago now. Um, it kind of tells a similar story, but at the other end of the ideological spectrum. Um, this story concerned um, the, the Green family, the, the billionaire evangelical owners of the Hobby Lobby chain, uh, who were the founders of the Museum of the Bible here in Washington, D.C., and um, they were also rooked and conned by... Um, by forgeries, by forged Dead Sea Scrolls, and by um, thousands of uh, biblical artifacts um, that had been looted from the Middle East uh, and had to pay the U.S. Justice Department something like $3 million to, um, to settle uh, those, those claims. And so I, I guess the point I want to make here is that this isn't sort of liberal versus conservative, devout versus um, you know, devout Christians versus you know conservative Christians versus progressive Christians, um, because I should say that Dr. Karen King is definitely a believer. Um, it's really a question of when you when you want to believe when you are, when you believe something too much, um, when you're not willing to sort of look inward and question um, the way in which your faith may be affecting your evaluation of certain kinds of evidence or the ethical decisions you're making in the real world, that that can compromise anybody. And I think the, the Green family is an example at the other end of the ideological spectrum where they were working with dealers who knew that they wanted to believe a certain story of Christianity so badly that you could basically give them anything um, and they would pay, they would, you know, they would fork over uh, uh, lots of money for it. And so I think it's a story about what happens when belief becomes too intense and the way in which con artists and scammers um, can, can, um, can, can, can profit off of that. Hmm. I just, okay, so I love this book. Well, now I can't wait to read the next one as well. Um, you guys should check out Ariel Sabar. You can just find him at arielsabar, S-A-B-A-R.com. Um, the book, Hot Off the Presses, definitely worth the end of summer read. Veritas, a Harvard professor, a con man, and the gospel of Jesus's wife. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. What, uh, what, just really, you just do great work. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Carmen. I appreciate the opportunity. Have a great weekend. We'll be right back. You too. All righty. We've got a weekend before us, which means we have an opportunity to get out there into the world that God so loves and to do so in ways that honor Jesus. I hope you are going to uh, invest part of your day in getting into the Word of God before you get out there into the world that He so loves. Let's also be people who uh, reach out today to somebody who may feel forgotten or sidelined 
Um, I'm just recognizing that there's a lot of folks uh, dealing with a lot of stress and trauma and grief and disappointment. And we need to be the people that reach into their lives with hope. So have a great weekend and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.